Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. From the Financial Times in London, this is the Life and Arts podcast, and I'm Lorian Kite, the FT's books editor. Is the abundance of information in the age of Google and Facebook storing up problems for future generations? Richard Ovenden, who is Bodley's librarian and is responsible for the research libraries at the University of Oxford, has written a fascinating essay on this subject for the FT's books pages. He came into the studio to discuss his conclusions with John Thornhill, the FT's innovation editor. Richard, you've written that the digitization of memory is both a great opportunity and a growing concern. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, over the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen a massive growth of the amount of information that society produces in digital format. And what we have failed to do really is to grasp the complexities of keeping that information accessible over long periods of time, and partly because we've only been doing digitization for a few decades where we've been writing our memories down on paper or printing them for millennia. And so the organizations and institutions that are involved in the preservation of knowledge are still getting to grips with the technological changes that have been sprung upon us. And although 20 or 30 years is actually a very long time in the life of a technology company, Google isn't that old, for example, it's actually quite a short period of time for a great library like the Bodleian, for example. And so the ability of our organisations to adapt their structures, their ways of working, their skill sets to cope with the incredibly fast-changing world of digital information is at the heart of what I see as the current problem. So much information is being produced by all sorts of new entrants on the information scene, and we are lacking a really comprehensive way of grappling with that explosion. As you say, I mean, there has been this explosion of information. I mean, I was reading that there are 300 million photos are uploaded to Facebook pages every day. A huge amount of data, information, ephemeral material, tweets, blog posts, books, articles... What is worth preserving in your view? (laughs) Um, Well, not all of it. And I think that's at the heart of the problem. There's a real dichotomy here because on the one hand, there's this explosion of the amount of data that it's theoretically possible to keep. There was Moore's law about both processing power and the cost of memory storage, which suggests that it's cheaper and cheaper to store information. And that's encouraging the growth of the creation of data but we don't want to keep it all. But at the same time, as we struggle with the idea of how to select and how to sift or filter that information, we're in the danger of losing the knowledge that we really want to keep because there is an ephemerality about it. We're beginning to see the notion of digital wills, for example. So we're beginning in the last decade or so to see people dying, 
and their heirs finding that they've kept pictures, information, email exchange, you know, what we would call correspondence in places like Facebook accounts or in their Google Mail or in Hotmail. But very often they won't leave information about how to access that after they've died. And so you find that heirs are trying to get hold of this information because it's very precious to them. But the legal and sometimes technological, but mostly legal and organisational barriers to enabling them to do it just aren't in place yet. Now, you mentioned that keyword filtering. Certainly for kind of non-personal or kind of public information, there has always been a kind of limit on the amount that is published. The publishers would decide who was going to publish books and work in a de facto filters for that information. But now we've had a removal of filters in terms of the publication, but we should have filters in terms of the preservation because there's only a physical limit to what we can preserve. Who should act as those filters now? Well, I think the role of, you could call them data stewards, but in old-fashioned parlance we might call them librarians and archivists, are absolutely critical to this. And obviously I would say that being in the kind of profession that I'm in. But I think we do need to have individuals who can appraise information, who can have the techniques and knowledge to sample large data sets so that we can keep examples, fractions of huge data corpora, so that we can either keep the right information or keep examples of large quantities. When you say right information, how do you know what is the right information? Because future historians might want access to very different types of information to the things that we think are important today. Well, there are a whole variety of different techniques for doing that. Sometimes it's by knowing the subject domain extremely well. So if you're dealing with political archives, you would need someone who has not only a knowledge of the political structures and political systems, but also which political debates or issues are the most significant or have the highest impact. Also, to have a historical knowledge, to have a sense of which roles at a particular time are the most important to keep the records of that individual or postholder or organisation. As you mentioned before, librarians, professional librarians such as yourself, have historically been the gatekeepers or the preservers of the collective memory, if I can put it that way. But we're now seeing the emergence of these extraordinary companies like Google, which Mm. spends, what, about $21 billion a year on data preservation as the repository of that collective memory. Is that a problem, do you think? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's fantastic they're spending that amount of money collecting Mm. and storing that data. On the other hand, what happens if Google goes bust? Well, I'd like to take issue with the sense that Google are preserving information. There's a big difference between storage and preservation. Google's been around for 20 years, roughly. You know, that's a nanosecond in the lifespan of knowledge that we have going back to, you know, the clay tablets that we still have from ancient Assyria, for example. And so Google's desire to store information is for their business processes, for their commercial advantage. They're using that knowledge not for knowledge's sake, but to extract information out of it, to monetize the behaviors that we leave in the way that we manipulate their online tools. So Google Mail, the main Google search engine, the shopping that we do on Google, that all leaves behavioral traces which they can algorithmically understand, plot, track, and use to enhance their own services, for example, artificial intelligence, 
or to sell on to advertisers. And so that's not preservation of knowledge for the sake of society. That's for their commercial advantage. So you think there does have to be some kind of public institution that has a Absolutely. far broader Society remit. itself has to establish institutions and organisations that are doing it on behalf of society and not on behalf of the shareholders of big tech companies. Tell us about the Digital Preservation Coalition. What, what do you get up to? <laughs> so we started off in the early decades of this millennium as a collection of memory organisations, British Library, National Archives, the Bodleian, Cambridge University Library and so on, got together to help share information and knowledge about how you preserve digital information. We could see the explosion. It was already having an impact in the publishing world. We were already beginning to digitise our own collection. So we needed to work together to share knowledge about how to keep that memory alive in long periods of time. And over the last 15, 16 years that we've been in existence, we've actually grown the kinds of organisations that have joined us. We're nearly 50 members now, including the Bank of England, the UK Atomic Energy Authority, the Metropolitan Police. Different organisations need to keep information alive for their, for the good of their organisations in one stage or another. And so by working together, we can develop best practice, we can share the experiences that we have, we can lobby government and other organisations to change policy so that we can all work out how to keep information alive over long periods of time because it's more than one organisation alone can deal with. Now, some people have suggested that we ought to have a memory tax to pay for that preservation. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, I th I think it's something that's worth exploring. I mean, I think at the heart of the problem, we have a loosely defined network of organisations, the libraries and archives and other memory institutions, which are all trying to grapple in some ways with these problems. And through organisations like the Digital Preservation Coalition and other collective action, we are working more collaboratively to solve these problems. But we are also still keeping alive clay tablets, medieval manuscripts, the correspondence of prime ministers. And so the analogue world hasn't gone away. We can't just ignore that legacy of the past. And it's part of our approach to the future. But so increasingly is the digital. And so at the heart of the problem for us at the moment is not only the skills and technologies that we need to keep digital information it's the financial resources to deploy those tools and skills and so finding some way of working if you like with the technology companies that are making extraordinary profits from digital memory plowing some of that back into society's organizations libraries and archives might be one way of solving the problem now we've been talking a lot about remembering this data preserving it but a lot of people are actually quite keen to forget it uh, <laughs> and in fact we have a law uh, about yeah. the right to be forgotten in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. How do you reconcile that historian's natural interest in wanting to preserve interesting data with the individual right to want to forget material and that could just be a youthful indiscretion that happens to be posted on Facebook mm -hmm. or it could be a politician who has performed some action which he's not particularly pleased of and would like to be expunged from the record. How do we institutionally forget well, I think we've always forgotten things either deliberately or by accident. So the libraries and archives in the world today do not store the entirety of the history of our planet. 
So we only have a fraction of the knowledge that has been historically created. And there's been a process of chance and a process of deliberate filtering, deliberate selection and appraisal and deliberate preservation actions. And that's going to continue into the digital age. We cannot store everything. But I think the right to be forgotten is something which different societies have approached. There's a very different approach to it in North America than there is in Europe. We have to remember that the right to be forgotten is about public information. It's not about private information. So uh, Philip Larkin, for example, famously had his diaries destroyed, burned on his death so that his private thoughts could not be passed down. He didn't want them to be shared for posterity. But we still have, obviously, all of his published work. But would he have sought to have the right to be forgotten for his poetry? I suspect not. So the number of situations or the kinds of situation, the youthful indiscretions that you put it, I think are, are not a huge risk to society's future. And I think it's a, a natural way of approaching the fact that there are so many information sources, it is so easy to put your own information online without thinking about it. You know, I've heard some technology chief executives say, you just got to get over it. And I think a more nuanced way of thinking about it is actually about what we in libraries call information literacy. So that's training students and everyone really to think much more carefully in advance of their engagement with the digital world, thinking in advance of how they develop their own digital identities and how they curate their own uh, reputations in an online network world. Great. That's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you. If you'd like to read Richard's essay in full, go to ft.com forward slash books. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.